Hey guys, this is Tim Powell from the Minerals and Royalties Authority. I recently sat down with Dick Jacobs, an industry veteran who's been in the oil and gas minerals trust space for over 40 years. During the episode, Dick talks about the early days of minerals management within the larger banks and how he thinks technology and the great wealth transfer will be catalysts to help open up the trust space to institutional capital and professional aggregators in the minerals and royalty space. Let's jump into the episode and hear more of what Dick had to say. Dick, good afternoon. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for taking the time to do this. Happy to do it. You know, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, you know, we've done quite a few episodes on, on this minerals podcast, but it's been primarily with minerals companies themselves, not anyone in the minerals management business, specifically minerals management within the, the, the banking sector. And you know, it's not something that gets a lot of uh, attention or a lot of love. I think the normal network that we operate in, it, it's not real as of today's norms and standards. You can't really acquire minerals out of trust. So uh, as a result, it doesn't really get talked about much. But in conversations we've had, right, it's a decent chunk of the minerals market, roughly 10 percent, give or give or take a percent here or there. And so it, it, it can't be ignored. And, and that's why I'm really excited to have you on and no, no one better to, to speak to minerals management than someone who's been doing it since the 80s, right? So without further ado, I'd love to hand it over to you. And let's give a little personal background on who you are, where you grew up, where you went to university, and you know how you got into oil and gas minerals management, which at the time didn't really exist, right? So uh, I'll let you take it away. All right. Well, it, this, this all dates back to the, uh, the 70s, so it, it might get strange. But... I- <laughs> I was, I was born in El Paso and uh, my family moved around the, the Rocky Mountain West my entire young life. So I, I lived everywhere from Montana uh, to El Paso to Utah, uh, Colorado, two or three times. Just my dad was a migrant white collar worker. So, so I was raised in, in an area where the oil and gas industry, if not a, not a huge presence, it was always there. You were always driving by drilling rigs or you were driving by pump jacks. So it was kind of always there in the background. The family finally settled in Golden, Colorado, and it had nothing to do with the beer, although I did enjoy that. And from there, I went out to California to university, to Claremont McKenna College, and there got a very marketable degree in Victorian English literature. You got your money's worth out of that tuition, huh? Boy, no kidding. (laughs) Way to go. Um, so, So with that in mind, I thought that law school might be a good idea. Uh, I went on to the University of Denver Law School and, and graduated from there in the, in the late 70s. At that time, just coming out of law school, trying to figure out what you want to do, where you want to go, Colorado and the Rocky Mountain West was experiencing an oil and gas boom. So walking into a, uh, an oil company and saying that you could, you could do mineral title or you could do title work was, for once in my life, I was a valuable commodity. And I started to work with a small oil and gas company that did most of their work in Michigan. And I learned very quickly that the oil and gas business was different from anything that I'd ever done before. Uh, I was hired as a landman for this eight-person company. And the president of the company, Ken Winter, who wore a cowboy hat, despite the fact he was from Howell, Michigan, said, all right, how much do you want? And uh, when can you start? 
And I was so excited to have a job. I said, I want $800 a month and I can be in it at eight o'clock Monday morning. And he sort of kicked back, put his feet on his desk and said, "Mm, not sure that'll work. Make it a thousand a month and don't come in before nine. So that was my start in the oil and gas business was land work. It was doing title work. It was, uh, and in a small oil company, we did everything. I, I worked on a rig for a while on a, on a cable tool rig in Michigan. I did title work. I did leasing. Um, really, it was a soup to nuts education in the oil business. And I found I really enjoyed it. And also as a young man in the oil business, there was a lot of money to be made. And that was very enticing. Well, fast forward about four years and two busts and two booms where I'd been laid off at least six times, rehired seven times, moved around the country, lived in motels, and I decided that it was now time to make a uh, lifestyle change so that I would survive into my 30s. On the, the back of that decision, was there was there a girl in the picture? I, I uh, when I was in my 20s, traveled everywhere and had a ball doing it internationally uh, for a company called PLS, and I was three, four weeks uh, a month on the road and. Australia, Hong Kong, Brazil, London, you name it, met my now wife and said, eh, that's not going to work. Let me, uh, let me rethink the strategy here, let alone making it to your thirties. It was more, you know, having the marriage, not, you know, not be a, a Vegas marriage that, that lasted one month. Right. So I'm just curious. Uh, no, yeah, ab- absolutely. That was, it was, I wanted to start a family and it, it was just, uh, an, irreconcilable lifestyle versus what I wanted to do in life. And so I went back to Denver from where I was working and I saw an ad in the paper. We, that's how you got jobs back in that day that the United bank of Denver was uh, looking for someone to open up and manage a trust oil and gas department. Um, And I thought, well, that sounds very interesting. Uh, I took trusts and estates in law school, so I considered myself an expert, as all lawyers do in anything that they've touched. And I knew a little bit about the oil and gas business. So uh, I walked in and was hired to start an oil and gas group. And I had really no idea uh, about the, the integration of oil and gas and the trust business. Um, now this is mid to late eighties. What what time? What year is this to yeah, give yeah. reference? Now 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 we're in the in the uh, the early eighties. We've uh, jumped forward to the early eighties, uh, and at this time, I I thought I had escaped a, a cyclical industry um, by moving out of the oil and gas industry into the very stable industry of banking. Unfortunately, I managed to to hit banking just as interstate banking um, was instituted in the United States, which resulted in a in a continuing seismic shift in the number of banks and how they're organized. So I just jumped out of the frying pan right in, into the pile of, of horse manure uh, in that respect. But it was fun. I, I got in there and I realized that, that the way the two industries integrated was that trust in estates, when families did estate planning or when you or are upon a death, if the family had owned minerals or been in the oil business, those were assets of that estate or trust, and they passed either to the corporate fiduciary, the individual fiduciary, and ultimately to the beneficiaries. So instead of being a landman and doing title and acquiring oil and gas interests, I suddenly found myself responsible for managing 
oil and gas interests that already exist. These oil and gas trusts w- within banks, when did those get established? Was this a new concept when you applied to United Bank of Denver? No. As, as long as there's been trust law, people have passed real property using trusts and estates. Um, and as the oil and gas industry developed and became a national U.S. industry, People got paid in overriding royalties, or they owned a farm and they had the minerals, and they passed them to their heirs. So as soon as minerals began to be severed from the land, as a matter of fact, some of the oldest trusts regarding minerals um, in the United States relate to salt farms. Salt was extraordinarily valuable uh, in Texas and West for packing beef, and there's some great stories about the first mineral trusts being families that passed salt mines and the oil and gas business just followed suit. Now, what about oil and gas minerals trusts? Did that specialization, did that, was that a new thing or that formed over time through your career or? Yes. Is it all- what, 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 now let's, let's get the, the terminology oil and gas mineral trusts. There are mineral trusts, royalty trusts that are investment vehicles. I'm not talking about that. When, when I talk about mineral trusts or oil and gas trusts, I'm talking about a family or an individual who owned that particular piece of property or those minerals, and they became part of the corpus of their their uh, family trust, or they became part of the corpus of their estate. So these are individual interests. They're not, they're not investment vehicles. This is what, this is like passing down the grand piano or, or grandma's China. Gotcha. And up until probably about the time that, that I entered into this with United Bank of Denver, all of those interests had been managed in the old school banking way, which by trust administrators and estate lawyers, which means they were ignored and they were put in the back of the drawer. And if a lease came by, you signed it and you collected your check. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Opportune LLP for sponsoring our Minerals and Royalties podcast. As a leading global energy business advisory firm, Opportune is well positioned to provide world-class technical, financial, and operational capabilities to minerals and royalties companies. Whether it's back office outsourcing, resource and reserve definition, land due diligence and administration, GIS mapping, valuation work, data and system integration, financial reporting, tax advisory, or buy and sell side assistance, Opportune LLP has got you covered. For more information, please visit www.opportune.com. Is your team interested in de-risking their underwriting on minerals acquisitions? What about maximizing the value of your minerals on exits? Source Energy is pioneering energy intelligence to help you stop guessing when, where, and if wells are gonna be drilled and completed on your minerals. If you're interested in tracking daily frac activity, buying white space before permits are filed, buying permitted acres just before the rigs show up, buying minerals at permit pricing when drilling is in progress, buying ducts with imminent flush production, or maximizing the value of your permits and ducts anytime you exit your minerals, then please visit www.sourceenergy.com minerals or email info at sourceenergy.com for a free demo. I also want to say thank you to Noble Royalties, who's been a leader in the minerals and royalty space since 1997. 
With the ever-changing landscape of the energy industry, Noble's team urges EMPs, mineral funds, and private families to rethink how they buy and sell their minerals. Noble's legacy and experience will assist in delivering effective solutions to EMPs and private owners alike on how to best maximize their mineral ownership in this ever-changing market. If you're interested in having a conversation about what might be the best solution for your company, fund, or family, then please reach out to Chase Morris at cmorris at nobleroyalties.com or Shannon Manor at smanor at nobleroyalties.com. Talk so, to me a little bit about, you know, we had talked about this offline, just the legal structure and the legal system around trusts and why trustees are incentivized to really not do anything uh, with the portfolio. And, you know, it's a big topic of discussion amongst the minerals uh, industry on, you know, how these minerals are managed within banks and how that, you know, why, why aren't they more actively managed? Why isn't there more expertise on them? Some of these minerals aren't being valued correctly. They, they could be spun out and sold at the peaks of, of the of frothy markets. Um, but, you know, you've been inside this world quite a bit. A lot of the conversations that I have are from the outsiders looking in, just using logic and saying, why, why, isn't, why aren't some of these assets shaking loose? You know, explain the dynamics of the trust world and, and why it, it is the way it is. Uh, that's a great segue in, into one of my favorite topics, which is the Jacobs theory of trust law. All right. Trust law, the idea of trusts originated in the late 1400s in France and England as basically a way for a family to pass real property through generations. These became entities to pass family wealth through generations. Now, if you're going to give somebody else the power to collect and keep your money or your wealth, human nature being what it is, that individual's first concept is, boy, how can I steal this and keep it all for myself? With that kind of human nature background, trust law developed over the, the last 500 years to create a system with trustees and beneficiaries and regulators and common law and legislation, all of that designed to prevent that theft from occurring. And the way you prevent that kind of a theft from occurring is you basically deny closure, right? If you can't make a deal on something, you can't steal it. If you can't make a deal on something, nobody can, ta nobody can take it away from you. It's going to be in your, in your trust forever. So one, you have this institutional, historic, legacy structure that makes closure, makes signing a deal, makes selling, makes valuing, makes it all damn near impossible. And then finally, you come up against the litigious nature of American society. And that is basically, if you're a trustee, you can't get sued if you don't do anything. And I don't mean that you don't do anything by, by not appearing to do something. I mean, if you don't sell, if you don't make an investment decision on an asset, you really can't be questioned. So those two things together have created basically a giant morass that prevents closure, it prevents deal-making, and ultimately it prevents making uh, intelligent and rational investment management decisions. Yeah, and, and, and on top of that, right, you're being paid on assets under management, right? You're getting a fee as a banker. So to take on all these extra risks to then sell an asset and then lower your AUM, the, the, the incentives are misaligned there, don't you think? Absolutely. 
Yeah, you, you, you hit a nail on an, uh, its economic head in, inside the trust business. An oil and gas interest is a, um, it's an annuity. You, you simply just, it's like clipping coupons. You just, the checks roll in. And so you, it, it requires almost no management. So yeah, if you sell it and then you, you pay the capital gains tax on it, because most of these have zero basis because they've been in families for so long, you're going to wind up investing in something that has a much lower return after tax. Well, so now, so I, listen, I appreciate that because that clarity on, you know, why the system, the way, it, the way it is and why the door is essentially shut, I think is going to be informative for a lot of people. Um, but, but let's go back now. So you, you, United Bank of Denver, you get hired for this position and then you ended up building and leading a lot of these uh, oil and gas mineral trust divisions for a handful of banks. Why don't we walk through that as your career unfolded? Yeah, that, I, I was lucky. I, I hit it an early time. I was able to go from uh, United Bank of Denver to Bank of America uh, with exactly the same portfolio and exactly the same uh, charge. Is They had hundreds of mineral assets in cardboard boxes and paperwork in a small office in Fresno, California, and they said, we're going to get sued. Something bad's going to happen. We need somebody to, to create a minerals a management group. So I was able to do that. And in the course of doing that, I ran into some people who sold, who had written and sold a software accounting package uh, for trusts that no one else had. And I, I became friends with or and acquaintances with a group out of Dallas by the name of Petrodata, um, three, three founders of that company. So Bank of America sold its trust department to Wells Fargo. Uh, Wells Fargo collapsed all of its oil and gas uh, into the group that I created. So we doubled the portfolio size. Um, we became, with Wells Fargo and BNA and Interstate Banking, we became a national distributor and manager of these assets. By that time, we had a staff of about 14 uh, managing these assets. And then ultimately, I got the opportunity to come back to Dallas when Nations Bank began its acquisitive stretch in the banking crisis of the early 90s, and it acquired the largest oil and gas management banks in, in the nation in Republic Bank of Texas. Uh, I came back and refined their oil and gas group. Being in Texas, they already had one. So that, that takes about 15 years of uh, California to Texas. Colorado, California, back to Texas. Before we transition into kind of the next stage of your career, PDS services, just real quick, what's the size and, and the scope of these trusts that you were managing? I mean, was it in the millions of acres? How big were they? Just to give everyone a you know, relative idea of, again, the chunk of the market they represent. Oh, yeah, that, that's interesting. Um, statistics are very difficult to come by. Obviously, and we can talk. We'll talk about the transparency of the oil and gas business based upon the trust oil and gas experience that I had in those three institutions. The size of the the average trust was somewhere a uh, mineral interest of one half of the minerals or less under 640 acres. So it was very isolated, very specific. But those, those 640 acres would be in the Permian Basin, they'd be in the DJ Basin, they'd be in the Kalinga Basin, um, or in the LA Basin. So, you know, so people knew these had values. That average sort of obscures the fact that at one end, at the large end, you had families that had thousands of acres of overriding or royalty interests that were unusually large, 
uh, represented probably only 5% of the total portfolio. And on the other hand, you had the family uh, at the other end who, who owned a dot zero 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 three three one royalty interest in a well in West Virginia. So it runs the gamut with the middle being very geographically and economically specific. Okay, perfect. And so, yeah, so now, now you, you move back to, so bring you back to your story. So you yeah. move back to Denver, your nation's banks. Uh, and then what, what happens next? You take a bit of a shift in your career. You get out of banking. <laughs> uh, but yes, I was determined at that point, uh, nation's bank then purchased bank of America and began a very acquisitive process. And at that point, my, uh, the executive management determined that I didn't play well with others. So, um, <laughs> there was a mutual decision uh, and mutual on their part that I was to find a different career path. So I was in Dallas. I had 15 years experience doing very specific things. I had a very specific idea about where the industry could go and the things that would need to be done to make it a, a viable industry. And I knew some guys who had a software company, those guys that I talked about at, at Petrodata. So I had determined or, or thought that using Drucker's outsourcing basic model, you leverage your intellectual skills and your intellectual property with software. You can do a lot more and you can do a lot more for everybody else. I thought, okay, let's start an oil and gas group, an oil and gas management group for corporate fiduciaries and individual fiduciaries that isn't a bank, that isn't tied to any investment philosophy. And I happen to know a bunch of guys that write the best software in the country to do this. Basically with that idea and over burritos and margaritas at Don Julio, PDS Services was launched in about in 1994. And PDS Services was an outsourcing company where we used the software to do the, the management and accounting for oil and gas interests. And I and a couple of others did the, did the oil and gas property management and our clients were corporate fiduciaries. Our first clients uh, included Bank of America, Security Pacific Trust, Morgan Stanley Trust, Merrill Lynch Trust, back when there were a lot of trust companies. So it, it, it turned out to be a very successful initial model. And so 94, you ended up running and building that company for 22 years, give or take, uh, until the exit. Talk to me about those 20 plus years. The best years, best professional years I, I've uh, encountered in my career. We were able to create a group that provided the added value for families in South Texas uh, to large international institutions like Royal Bank of Canada and Barclays Bank and do it in such a way that we became not only the market leader for the first five or 10 years, we were the only people in this space. So everything we did was new. Everything we did required sitting down and coming up with, a, with an effective model. And over that period of time, we developed a, a, a very strong, uh, effective, and, and small team of oil and gas managers and oil and gas accountants and programmers. So finally, in let's say about 2017, because of the programming and the work that we've done, we got noticed by a VC-backed firm out of Boston by the name of InnoVest, who also did a lot of trust accounting software. And they purchased the company from the four of us that were the original owners. In the last year, InnoVest itself has been purchased by a, an even larger fintech company uh, called SS&C, which has platforms on the financial services side uh, that are global platforms, much more in the institutional 
and the equity side. So that's, that was the arc of PDS services. Did you stay on board to, to manage the business or was there a transition period there? I mean, are you still involved? I stayed on board for three years to manage the business. And then I decided that, again, this goes back to the, the decision at Bank of America that I didn't play well with others in a, in a large corporate environment. I decided that I would, I would have more fun teaching and have more fun doing consultative work. So, well, for the last year and a half, uh, I've taught at the Canon Trust School, and I've also at the same time been doing consultative work, both, both for PDS and for individual families and foundations. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Noble Royalties, who's been a leader in the minerals and royalty space since 1997. With the ever-changing landscape of the energy industry, Noble's team urges EMPs, mineral funds, and private families to rethink how they buy and sell their minerals. Noble's legacy and experience will assist in delivering effective solutions to EMPs and private owners alike on how to best maximize their mineral ownership in this ever-changing market. If you're interested in having a conversation about what might be the best solution for your company, fund, or family, then please reach out to Chase Morris at cmorris at nobleroyalties.com or Shannon Manor at smanor at nobleroyalties.com. Need energy industry management experience at your fingertips? Opportune LLP, a leading global energy business advisory firm, has the capabilities needed to overcome your minerals and royalties team's technical, operational, and financial challenges. To learn more, search Opportune's podcast E2B, Energy to Business, on Apple and Spotify Podcast, where Opportune examines emerging financial and technology trends and provides a broad perspective on ways to stay ahead, create opportunities, and execute market strategies. For more information, please visit www.opportune.com. Predicting operator behavior is the name of the game in the mineral space, but using permits and relocations alone to do this is not enough. Detecting well pads and frack ponds in order to see which permits are on the rig schedule, discount permits that won't ever be sputted, and determine which ducks are next up on the frack schedule is key to de-risking your underwriting. By using satellite imagery and AI, Source Energy shows oil-filled well pad construction before permits are filed shows frack pond filings even before the crew arrives, and shows pinpoint frack crew movements daily, so you can get ahead of drilling activity and completions. If you're interested in leveraging this technology to revolutionize your ground game, then please feel free to visit www.sourceenergy.com minerals or email info at sourceenergy.com for a free demo. No, well, excellent. I, I mean, a lot of experience in the minerals management space, and you've seen especially at the tail end when you guys exited, you started to see the, the minerals business itself become a little bit more sophisticated and institutional capital started to come in. And so it's changed quite a bit. I'd like to you know, transition now, talking about the minerals space at large and the trust space. When we've talked in the past, Dick, you, you see disruption coming and there's a number of catalysts you think that are going to uh, ignite that disruption in the minerals management space and, and in the trust space. Why don't you uh, expand upon that? Because it's really interesting stuff. No, I, I, I appreciate that, Tim. The nexus between the mineral space and the trust space is a truly bizarre market. It is even more bizarre than just dealing in, in, in minerals without the trust side. What you have, as you know, in the oil and gas space is you have an industry that is extraordinarily opaque. Unlike the real estate industry or the equities industries where information allows investors to make intelligent decisions. 
the oil business puts walls up around information. Information is gold. Information is the absolute assets of each one of the companies. So you have an industry that is extraordinarily opaque right now. And then you have on the trust side, you have a generally uneducated and unsophisticated owner who is disinclined to do anything. So you take those two things and you put it together and you think, this is a God awful mess. You can't <laughs> find anything out. And even if you find anything out, you're not going to do anything. So that's the environment that you're working in, in, in the trust mineral space. I believe that the answer to that, and you, you hinted at it, is technology. We've seen some technology companies come in and make initial inroads in this. Drilling Info and EnergyNet being first the first two that I'll speak about. EnergyNet alone, the auction space that they created, created the first quasi-transparent sales vehicle in the mineral industry ever. Imagine it's you, you did the first MLS. It's interesting. I think that the information that the info and the data that the energy net gleans is much more valuable and probably returns more on their investment than the actual commissions they make on selling the property because of the, of the amount of information there. Drilling info, another technology that is brought into the office, the ability to look at properties and trends and prices. So those are the starts. Those are, those are the first two that's in there. I think what is coming next and what, what I've been working on with some other folks is an effective way to value a piece of mineral property and not value it in the classic way that the petroleum engineer values it and not value it in the dumb way of three times revenue or five times revenue that the IRS says is effective for estate tax purposes, but actually provide an investment value at a very reasonable cost available to the consumer. Once you do that, once a consumer, once I know what my interest is worth, what it's really worth, then I might be much more inclined to lend on it, to borrow against it, to sell it, to bifurcate it. But if I don't know what it's worth, I'm never going to make a change. And having the transparency on the value mitigates your litigious risk as a trustee manager, right? Yeah. Uh, because you can point to data and, and, and you can't be accused of selling it under market value or whatever. As a trustee, you don't have to be smart. You don't have to be right. You simply need to be reasonable and prudent in your decision-making and document your thought process. So I can be slow and stupid and dumb and make bad decisions that result in losses. But if I've documented my thought process and I appear to be reasonable and prudent, I'm cool. The other part of having data that's easily available is it forces you, if your competitor starts using this data or if your neighbor's using it or if the co-trustee or your nephew's using it, or God forbid, one of the beneficiaries of a trust can use it and look at it, then all of a sudden you're not reasonable and prudent. It's available there. It's not that expensive. You can use it. That becomes a market disruptor. That starts to snowball down the hill, I believe. The other thing you see as a, as a major catalyst is the, the great wealth transfer that's on the horizon. That's really interesting. What, what are the dynamics at play there that you think will impact the minerals management space? All right. One of the things that historically in the minerals management space, people, if you're first or second generation owner of some minerals, granddad or dad or mom told you never sell those. Now, the great wealth transfer, which is the transfer between my generation, 
boomer generation and subsequent generations is going to be the largest single transfer of wealth in the history of the American economy. Estimates on the total amount of wealth transfer are somewhere between 30 and $60 trillion. It's going to take place over a 20-year period, and that 20-year period is beginning about now. It's already started, actually. Of that 30 to $60 trillion wealth transfer to third or fourth generations or fifth generation owners, IRS statistics based upon 706 estate tax returns that IRS has suggest that 53% of that 30 to 60 trillion is not securitized. It's real estate, it's oil and gas, it's closely held businesses, it's art, but that's a huge transfer. If all you're paying attention to is your stockbroker and all they're paying attention to is that half that 30 trillion, you're missing half the boat. It's just, it's flying right by you from a planning perspective. And the other thing, as I pointed out, by the time you get to the fourth or fifth generation who's going to be receiving this huge transfer, they're much less connected to it, much more connected to data, much more connected to investment analysis. You're in an absolute sweet spot to create a transparent marketplace or attempt to create a transparent marketplace, securitize these things, lend against them, make rational decisions. Yeah, I mean, with the unconventional boom that, that's really unfolded in the last 12 years or so, 12, 15 years, the dynamic of never sell your minerals, I think it's just a different conversation. Scott Noble went into this uh, when we did the episode with him. He just said, back in the day, it was peak oil, conventional CO2 floods, uh, you know, acres were being sold at three, 400 bucks an acre. And now with the, the scale of capital that's going into unconventional drilling and the premiums that are being paid for core acreage, if you have minerals that are in the, happen to be in these sweet spot areas, you know, if you have someone managing your assets, you want them to be informed, you want them to know the value and you want them to monetize them for you if, if the timing's right, right? So I think it's different. The generations today, not only are they less emotionally connected, but it's not the same paradigm that you had back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. I agree. You can securitize it. You can lend against it. An example, a farming family down in South Texas, near Carnes County, Texas, Polish descendants been farming the same 1,200 acres outside of Carnes County for 150 years. When the Eagleford Shale boom came in, they had wells drilled on their property and they began receiving checks of five to $7 million a month. They just put them in the bank. They had no idea what to do, A, with the money, but more importantly, they had no idea on how to, to monetize and protect their mineral interests for future generations and, and remove the, the risk associated with being just in one industry. Let's play the what if game. Okay. Technology brings transparency. The great wealth transfer causes these, these assets to start to be divested. You've told me oil and gas mineral trusts represent about 10% of the minerals market nationally. If I'm a CEO of a minerals company and I have institutional capital or family office money. I just, I have a dedicated fund put together and I'm in the business of buying minerals. How do I get a piece of this 10%? What are the next steps? Is it, is there really nothing you can do today? I and mean, is there any sort of role for the industry aggregators to play in this to help accelerate things? Yeah, I, I, that's a great question. And, and I do think there is. I think that by educating trustees, by going in and saying and explaining to them the value that they know about these minerals and offering them some form 
of financial vehicle that would help both diversify the trust portfolio, reduce risk, increase return, and the education process at that point just builds the transparency. So you go in, you, you put on a seminar, you do things like you're doing. Here's a tip, make it available to regulators, make it available to the OCC. There's nothing a, a bank trust department hates more than an intelligent regulator. And that's one of the reasons I, I like to teach in, in those seminars. Uh, so so that's that's really interesting. I mean, uh, listen, the same thing is happening on the institutional capital side. That's why this podcast exists today. There's a huge educational curve, basically bringing yield investors up to speed to say, this is an asset class you should be looking at, especially in a low interest environment. And that's been a collaborative effort between uh, myself, between the, the MARC conference, between all the banking Credit Suisse and others who have royalties conferences, the individual CEOs who go on roadshows, um, the public companies and, and their analysts that cover them. We're all trying to get the word out and, and bring these generalist investors in and, and explain to them that the asset class is different than the upstream operated assets and expand the space. And so the same type of approach could be taken to, to trust owners, you're saying. Now, let me ask you this. 10% of the market, who are the gatekeepers? You, Wells Fargo is a big one. Um, is it all in the hands of the big guys? Or do you have a bunch of mom and pop local you know, banks and small towns that have stuff as well? What, what does that ecosystem look like? Yeah, no, that's, that's a good question. Let, let me back up a little bit because I, I'd like to revisit slightly the educational bent that you just talked about. I'll, I'll tell you who you're not talking to. You're not talking to to trust and estates, accountants, or attorneys. And, and you're not talking to regulators. If you get the people that are planning, explain to them the advantages of monetizing these assets or, or some other method. The people who are planning for this next generational transfer, that's also going to get the snowball going. But rolling back to, the, to your original question, sorry, I just I, I drove off the edge of a cliff there. What does the world look like? The world in terms of corporate fiduciaries is really the big three. It's going to be Bank of America, Wells Fargo, Chase. Those will be followed by uh, some very uh, effective niche players like Frost Bank. And then ultimately, and, and these are not to be ignored, you've got very small local banks like uh, Happy State Bank in Happy, Texas, which has a very substantial mineral portfolio. Now, what I, what I have not touched on are the individual trustees in the names of lawyers or accountants who are doing that as well. That, that is just an, an untapped reservoir as well. And, and they're scattered all over the country. They're not centralized in any institution, right? This is an attorney acting on behalf of a family. This is one-off stuff, correct? Yeah, yeah, that's correct. Okay, that, no, that's-, that's uh, like, like a podcast like this could be extraordinarily effective um, if it was aimed at estate planning attorneys or local attorneys who happen to have oil and gas interest, how to deal with it? No, absolutely. I mean, you, you got me you got me thinking here while we're doing this. This is extremely interesting. I mean, I think the role we're trying to play in the mineral space is to be the voice of the mineral space, the networking platform, the educational platform. And and like you said, this is something that isn't getting a lot of love and and should, because at some point in the future, that change will happen. It's just a matter of, of when, not uh, not how, right? Yes. Or, or when, not if, I should say. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think how is also the one, because I think what you and I are talking about 
Um, and what we're trying to do is, is bring transparency and velocity to a market that has had neither for a century or more. Dick, this has been really interesting and it's a, such a unique perspective and track record and career that you have to speak to this with a lot of credibility. Do you have ambitions to get back into the space, perhaps a, a royalties vehicle that looks to exploit the disruption of the trust space since you know it so well? I mean, what, what do you have planned in store going forward? You know, I, I like the teaching part of it. That That's fun. But more than that, I think that I am committed to the idea that this industry needs to change and that technology and education are the ways it's going to change. So um, I've been in discussions with people about becoming more personally involved in the technology side and the education side. So I'm not done yet. Let's put it that way. Fantastic. Well, we look forward to, to keeping in touch, Dick, and if and when appropriate, you know, the the one thing I think is great about doing podcasts and uh, being on the record is you can be historically correct. So what will be really fun is in a year from now, three years from now, six years from now, whenever you start to see shifts in the in the trust space, we can pull this up and we do a round two. Yeah, and bring me pudding at the at the home when we do that, okay? <laughs> I hope that sense of humor, you know, it, it's, uh, it's refreshing. I, I live in Texas now, but I grew up in New York and you can really appreciate a, a dry, sarcastic sense of humor from a mile away when you're a New Yorker, especially when you, you've lost your way and you live in Texas now. Yeah, I, one of my best friends in the business is uh, grew up in Little Italy, lives in Long Island, and uh, been in the trust business for 40 years. If you want to talk trust, we get Bob Randoni on the phone. Well, Dick, I, I really enjoyed this. Thank you for the chat. On behalf of the mineral space, thank you for contributing your thoughts on this because this is going to be a really interesting one. I know it's going to be well-received by our network for sure. Well, I appreciate it, Tim. I appreciate the opportunity and thanks for reaching out. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed. The Minerals and Royalties Authority is a specialist advisory firm focused exclusively on the minerals and royalty space for oil and gas and renewables. With our leading content platform and thought leadership, our team is continually looking to bring awareness to the mineral space in order to help investors and companies buy and sell deals and form new partnerships. If you're interested in scheduling a call to explore ways the Minerals and Royalties Authority can help your team through our offering of consulting services for business development, marketing, capital raising, and A&D, then please send me an email at tim at mineralsauthority.com. Also, Please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and be sure to share these episodes with anyone in your network that you think would enjoy. Thanks. See you next time.